This is Macro Horizons, episode 85, Autumn is Coming, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 8th. And as the season changes, we cannot help but hum the bond market classic, we'll miss booze most of all when autumn yields start to fall. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed was a very interesting one in the Treasury market for several reasons. First was we saw a solid reversal of the attempt to break toward a higher yield plateau, with 10-year yields almost reaching 80 basis points. The reversal back to the mid-60s was rather dramatic, and even though we ended the week with a solid steepening sell-off as a result of the better-than-expected employment report, with the highlight being the lower-than-expected unemployment rate, nonetheless, 10-year yields were below 70 basis points. Now, this offers meaningful confirmation of the range trading thesis, although it doesn't do much to inspire the re-steepening that many, ourselves included, have been anticipating would characterize the Treasury market in 2020. We certainly haven't abandoned that call, although we will acknowledge that the event risk around the presidential election implies that if and when we do get a more durable steepening sell-off, it will most likely occur after the beginning of November. Now, a lot has been said about the relevance of the election in terms of its potential market impact. We still think that the biggest driver of the macro narrative will be progress toward a vaccine. This implies an increased scrutiny on the headlines and the results related to the phase three trials that are expected to come out over the course of the next few months. In this context, any backup in rates will most likely be limited by the uncertainties linked to the virus as well as the upcoming election. These aren't particularly new themes, but warrant reiteration given that we did see a reasonable employment report, and the employment report, with its headline matching consensus, didn't illustrate any of the weakness that might have been associated with the increase in COVID-19 cases seen during the middle of the summer. The other incoming information that we received over the course of the week reiterated some of the ongoing themes. We had a better than expected ISM manufacturing print, as well as a meaningful disappointment on ADP that didn't actually translate through to a weaker non-farm payrolls print. That said, the private component of NFP came in roughly 250,000 jobs below the consensus. In addition, we saw an unexpected monthly gain in average hourly earnings of four-tenths of a percent versus forecast for an unchanged month. This leaves the year-over-year print at 47 
And while the initial increase in wages was attributed to a compositional issue, given that the majority of the early job losses originated in the lower wage service sector, the fact that wages are moving higher as sidelined employees come back into the market is encouraging, although it's still too early to assume that this will translate into durable upward pressure on demand-side inflation. So guys, it's definitely been a summer to remember, and we're right up against Labor Day, sort of the unofficial change of the season. What are going to be the primary themes over the next month, six weeks, two months? And maybe you had a summer to remember, but I personally had a summer to forget happy to move on to the balance of the year. So in this context, we're thinking the election still matters. It's relevant, especially given the way that the conventions have played out and the campaigns appear to be taking shape. So clearly an event risk between now and the end of the year. However, the results of the presidential election and even the composition of Congress are not going to materially reshape the economic outlook. A lot of that is going to be contingent on the success or lack thereof in progress towards a vaccine that could be mass produced and distributed in relatively short order. Now to say that we have limited insight on that potential would be to overstate our expertise. So from our perspective, we will be very reactive to incoming headlines and details about the success of the phase three trials. All of this with the backdrop of Congress, which appears less and less likely to cobble together another fiscal bailout. And if they are able to, the assumption is increasingly that it will be a disappointment in its magnitude. Couple that with a Fed that has made it abundantly clear they are ready to provide additional monetary policy accommodation in addition to the framework shift that's already occurred. And the real risk then becomes whether or not we see another uptick in COVID-19 cases as the weather cools and the traditional flu season is upon us. And obviously the successful approval of a vaccine is going to be step one. And then a little bit more unknown is the readiness of the population to actually take up the vaccine and utilize it to a sufficient degree to prevent another massive surge in cases similar to what we saw earlier this year. So this to me then raises the question of what happens in the event of a quote unquote big vaccine disappointment? As troubling as it is to think about, in the event that there are some scientific setbacks and a lot of these vaccines that are in the pipeline get pushed out to mid-2021 or later, certainly not a base case, but something worth acknowledging, what then would that do to risk sentiment in markets and risk assets specifically? In our pre-NFP survey, it was relevant to see that the anticipated downside for the S&P 500 only yielded an average result of 3,200. Now, given the fact stocks have been able to retain almost all of their recovery from the March lows, a meaningful delay of the vaccine being viewed as only sufficient to get stocks back down to 3,200 was notable and to me just reinforces this notion that investors have a substantial faith in the Fed to continue to step in and help markets when needed. Ben, on that note, one of the things that's going to be incredibly thematic through the rest of 2020 is whether some of the trends that we've seen since April are able to hold in place. And really, there are three that I'm specifically speaking about. One is an expectation and pricing of lower for longer, translating into a low and relatively flat treasury curve. 
two, dollar depreciation, and three, strong risk asset performance. All three of these are consistent with a classic dovish monetary policy influence. The problem going forward, though, is I only have very high conviction that one of those three will be able to sustain through December, and that is that rates are going to stay lower for longer. The reality is the way the Fed interacts with financial markets, it does so through the interest rate channel, and they've, in essence, really told us rates are at zero, they're going to stay at zero for a while, and we're going to keep QE going full blast. Now, the FX and equities channel are more indirect impacts, but still highly important for financial conditions. And if we take a step back, the Fed has made a lot of very aggressive moves over the past several months. In some ways, it'll be interesting to watch this fall. How does the BOJ respond? How does the ECB respond? Do they start to get worried about their currencies appreciating against the dollar, tightening their area's financial conditions? And moreover, on the equity side, obviously, it's been an extremely strong performance over the past few months. And it's interesting to see that there's higher and higher conviction around some of these valuations, whereby even a delay in the vaccine, a delay in the labor market recovery, for example, doesn't necessarily lead to a capitulation, just kind of a slight give back. And I think that does set up 2021 to be even more telling in this regard. So imagine we get through to the end of the year, front-end rates very well contained. Perhaps we do get some increase in terms of inflation expectations ahead of the calendar turn. How then should one expect the equity market and financial markets more broadly to perform once we find ourselves settling into some version of a new normal. I think that's going to be one of the questions that we get more information on as we gauge investors and policymakers' response to the developments between now and December. One way I've been thinking about the equity market, which will be interesting to watch how it plays out, is there are kind of two causal lines of thinking. One is Stocks go up in value, people feel wealthier, so they spend more. Therefore, corporate earnings actually increase, justifying those valuations. The other is people go out and spend money. The increase in earnings pushes up equity valuations. What it seems to me is that the Fed has really pushed the wealth channel effect for the first several months this year. And what we need to see is that sustained increase in consumption, that increase in earnings to feed through to some of these corporate valuations. No doubt a lot of the fiscal support that's occurred since March has assisted in this. But as the economy kind of takes off its training wheels, so to speak, it's going to be important to see if there's a resurgence in consumer confidence, a willingness to go out and spend some of the money saved, or do we kind of see a flatlining or stabilization at a much lower plateau than desired? Well, and I think a lot of that is going to be a function of what happens in the labor market. We're still missing millions of jobs versus where we were prior to the pandemic, and the pace at which they're recovered will be meaningful for consumer confidence and spending as well. And in assessing the direction of the labor market, it's telling that the Department of Labor felt it necessary to change the seasonal adjustments to their jobless claims data. And while the nuances of the multiplicative factor versus the additive factors are firmly in the wheelhouse of the statisticians at the BLS, what it really does is muddy the waters in comparing the jobless claims figures from early mid-pandemic to now this period that we might be able to classify as later pandemic. 
And from a higher level, it's really great evidence that seasonal adjustments and data collection more broadly work well in the normal state of the world. But in a crisis environment like the one we're currently coming out of, not just the actual process of data collection, but also accounting for swings in seasonal workers becomes that much more challenging and makes it that much more difficult to interpret the pace of the recovery in the labor market. And of course, the pace of the labor market recovery has an interplay with expectations for the pace of the overall recovery of the domestic economy. And as it stands, expectations continue to run in the 25 to 30% range for third quarter real GDP. However, the combination of the base effects and the lingering damage to the consumer base really puts that number in a different context. Turning the lights back on doesn't necessarily mean that restaurants are going to fill up. It doesn't necessarily mean that consumption patterns are going to go back to how they were pre-pandemic. In fact, a lot has changed in 2020, and it will take a very long time to get back to any semblance of what we saw prior to the pandemic, if we ever get there at all. And one other reality we're facing is that, you know, there was a lot of conversation about what letter shape the recovery is going to be. And I think it's increasingly apparent that K might be the right answer, where there was a sharp drop. Some industries and firms responded. Some industries and firms recovered very quickly, if not are doing better. Others are doing worse. And the problem is we now have kind of that two-track economy, but we only have individual numbers to capture two differential directions. So I think that'll be important to keep in mind when seeing some of these labor market prints, seeing some of these growth prints, it's almost as if ideally there would be two numbers. There's one number for the side of the economy that's doing well, one number for the side of the economy that's doing poorly. And really it's going to be the balance between those two that generates the net impact. The disparate impacts of COVID are not going to be uniform, resulting in a 25-30% quarter-over-quarter annualized growth. Instead, what you're probably going to see is some firms do much, much better than that, and others do much, much worse. And I think that that same paradigm applies to individuals in the labor market as well. And as Powell outlined in the change of the framework, the Fed's intentions are currently to let the unemployment rate run even lower than in previous cycles with an understanding that bringing some of the low wage earners back into the labor force is key for generating the type of demand side inflation that the Fed would like to generate. To say nothing of what it means for consumption and overall growth in the economy. And circling back to our pre-NFP survey and a focus on the Fed, one of the natural questions as we approach fall is, what will be next from the FOMC if in fact there needs to be a next? And really what emerged from the responses we got were two clear-cut frontrunners, first being more clarity on outcome-based forward guidance, whether that be related to inflation, employment, something calendar-based, or any combination of those variables. And consensus on the other potential policy was an extension of the weighted average maturity of the QE purchases. We saw a speech from Brainerd this week that some seemed to interpret as hinting at this reality. And really, at the end of the day, what that would do is mechanically weigh more on longer-dated yields and offer more accommodation through the interest rate channel, exactly as you were saying earlier, John. And on that idea that the Fed would shift to backloading some of their purchases, some context here is helpful. They have a lot of space to do this. Right now, they're doing something around 50% of purchases four and a half years and in. 
even if they proportionally distributed that further across the curve, this could basically be almost a doubling of demand in that 20 to 30 year bucket. Ben, you mentioned this will weigh on yields, but it also intuitively would push into a bit of a flatter curve and take some of the steepening pressure that's been so popular over the past few months. It will also naturally lead to a little bit of flattening pressure and take some wind out of that steepening trade that's been very much in vogue for the past several weeks and months. Well, one could argue it actually already has. That's one of the things I've been trying to grapple with, how much of this most recent reversal of the steepening that we've been waiting for has to do with people building in the expectations for the Fed to change the composition of its purchases and introduce a longer weighted average maturity regime. Alas, it has been a week where we've produced more questions than answers for sure. What do you think the likelihood that any move such as this will be announced at the September FOMC is? I think a lot of that would be contingent on where financial conditions are and if we're starting to see any wobbles in risk assets or concerns in the labor market that would warrant something a bit more proactive. All else being equal, if we find ourselves on the 16th of September and the world is relatively similar to where it stands at this moment, I think that that would be an environment in which the Fed could bide their time and hold that potential policy shift in reserve. One nuance I'd offer, and I 100% agree that September may be too early, is that because of the timing of the presidential election, we might need to wait until the December FOMC for any major announcement. Now, One could argue that because the FOMC meeting in early November occurs just after the presidential election, well, maybe that means that Powell would be comfortable making a move. But keep in mind, with the amount of mail-in voting that will be occurring, it's entirely possible that we might not know the outcome of the election until after this occurs. Whether the Fed wants to get involved with major policy decisions in such an uncertain environment, difficult to say. Of course, if financial conditions deteriorate substantially, I have no doubt they'll step in. It's more a question of if things are humming along and they decide they need to extend the wham of the purchases, for example, would they go ahead and pull the trigger or just signal maybe we'll do that in December? In keeping with the importance of that time of the year, let us not forget that that's when we're going to have some greater clarity on the progress towards a vaccine. So the Fed has emphasized on several occasions the economic outlook is tied to the outlook for the pandemic. And so it's not too difficult to envision a world in which there's disappointment on the vaccine side. That leads to a retracement in the equity market, spike in volatility, tightens financial conditions, and the Fed finds themselves in a position where they need to deliver additional stimulus regardless of the election-related uncertainty during that week. I'd also offer that the flip side might be true. If we get substantial progress on a vaccine and that leads to an increase in yields, especially real rates, that could tighten financial conditions and slow the recovery, something kind of akin to a taper tantrum that's occurring not because of any Fed speak. In such a world, expect a lot of Federal Reserve communications saying rates are still staying at zero and we're still going full blast in a QE program but not necessarily because of COVID, if there's a vaccine, but because unemployment is still extremely high and inflationary pressure is still too low. So essentially what you're saying is ease if they do, ease if they don't. Man, who would have ever thought Powell's job has become so ease-y? 
Easy, you two. I don't get it. In the holiday-shortened week ahead, the Treasury Department will be auctioning 50 billion three years, 35 billion tens, and 23 billion 30 years. The trading dynamic around the August set of comparable bonds, albeit the refunding rather than the reopening, was decidedly bearish. And as we contemplate the week ahead, having an upward skew on rates within the range is the path of least resistance. So incremental steepening in a classic supply accommodation and coming out of the auctions with a long bias has been a relatively productive strategy over the last several months. And so we don't see any reason to fade that. There's little question that the 3.5% sell-off in the equity market will leave investors focused on the performance of stocks in the upcoming week. Whether there is a rebound or a period of consolidation remains to be seen. The obvious concern, particularly for the Fed, is that what we're seeing isn't a one-off healthy bull market correction, but rather it's the beginning of a more dramatic repricing comparable to what we saw in February and March. The Fed's primary concern is any associated increase in equity volatility that would subsequently tighten financial conditions. Given the proximity to the FOMC meeting, at this point we suspect that there's very little that can occur during the interim that would prompt the Fed into action, with the exception of a more dramatic sell-off in stocks. Nonetheless, the consensus is for the Fed's decision on the 16th of September to be effectively a placeholder. There's been chatter about increasing the weighted average maturity of QE or shifting to an outcome-based version of forward guidance. We continue to expect that these changes will not occur until later in the fourth quarter or in 2021. So with the backdrop of the Fed's new framework and its emphasis on letting inflation run hot, it will be interesting to see how Friday's core CPI figure is digested by the market. Intuitively, as with the supply, a three-tenths of a percent gain in core CPI during the month of August should be a bear steepener. Nonetheless, as that trade a is very crowded, and B has now failed twice in the month of August, we suspect investors will ultimately be a bit more cautious in chasing any steepening at this stage. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As the search for a COVID-19 vaccine has become the new international arms race, we're thankful English offers so many homonyms. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts.
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.